What is creativity? And what are its origins? And how do we access creativity in our lives? This podcast explores the intersection of creativity, imagination, and everyday life. At this crossroads, we experience wonder and magic, and if we're lucky, transformation. Welcome to the Quotidian. Welcome back to The Quotidian. I'm Bradley Dennis. To say that Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian dismisses a great deal of the substance that makes him one of the most sought-after religious thinkers in the West. He describes himself as conservative. However, this might only be applied in a religious context. His politics lean much more left of center than his Texas blue-collar past and gravelly twang might imply. Stanley has written or co-authored dozens of books and papers. Among them, his memoir, Hannah's Child, is a beautiful and award-winning reflection on a life of metaphysical and theological passions in a Herculean effort to discern truth for himself, for his students, and for the church. We met at Stanley's home and enjoyed his amazing art collection, as well as his two Siamese cats, Hope and Faith, who appear a few times during the conversation. We spoke about why postmodern leanings, which defer to personal identity, obfuscates a deep search for the divine and the importance of friendship to cultivating a relationship to religio and why imagination is essential for a true faith and a relationship to something greater than ourselves. This episode is sponsored by carolinacommons.org who exist to help individuals, teams, and communities develop their creative voice and vision in order to help make sense and meaning in the world. Go to www.carolinacommons.org to learn how you can develop and enhance your creative capacities. And now please enjoy my conversation with the most earnest man I've ever met, the Reverend Dr. Stanley Hauerwas. So one of the things you warned me about before we started, or when I talked to you on the phone, was you said that you don't use the word spirituality. And when I was initially thinking about talking to you about the links between creativity and spirituality, you said I don't use that word. So the 
the first question would, would be to help me understand what's objectionable about spirituality or what, I mean, what's the replacement term or what is, tell me a little more about. Um, the reason I don't like the word is it's used primarily by people that say, uh, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Christian, but I'm spiritual. <laughs> And I want to know, what in the hell is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, uh, it's that I get to make up my own uh, idea about what might make life meaningful in a way that uh, fails to recognize that I am, uh, in fact, not making, um, not making up my own religious life, mm -hmm. I'm, um, in fact, living out the life that um, a culture embodies uh, in liberal industrialized societies, namely that I get um, to, that I'm an individual before I'm anything else. My way of putting that is um, modernity names the time when you produce people that believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. Right. That's called spirituality. And um, I, of course, think that that's a deeply self-deceptive story because who told you that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story? Mm -hmm. uh, that's already, um, you accept that story as the story that determines you is ironic because you didn't choose the story that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. So, um, I, uh, I just stay away from the word spirituality insofar as it names that yeah. kind of uh, presumption. So if that's, if the term spirituality, which is used pretty liberally nowadays, and, and we're in sort of the, I think I've heard people refer to it as none of those, like none of the aboves, people don't. Right. You know, they're not Catholic, they're not Jewish, they're not Christian. How how do people find story and how do they find meaning in, in the world, especially given such distrust with religion and with religious dogma? Um, I think friendship is absolutely crucial. Hmm. Uh, in order to uh, discover um, truths that I didn't make up. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, um, I think that most, or, or many people that say they're not associated with any tradition um, 
th- in a way that they think they get to make up whatever tradition they're in, um, fail to uh, see that to, to be truthful means that you are uh, embodied in a set of habits that a tradition um, represents. So the kind of general negativity toward um, being part of a tradition, I think, is very destructive insofar as I think that you only can find your way insofar as you learn to live in a substantive tradition that has been embodied in people who befriend you. Mm-hmm. And that befriending implies community. It implies trust. It does. Um, and of course, I'm not. I'm not going to deny at all. Indeed, uh, that um, Christianity has produced some sublimely fucked up people. Yeah. And uh, there have been um, the. Um, coercive and um, um, misleading modes of life that are oftentimes associated with Christianity, I'm not going to deny. We know they're wrong because of what Christians believe. Right. <laughs> so so the very um, uh, arguments uh, against Christianity reproduce it. Mm-hmm. You can, uh, as you know, next door to me used to be uh, uh, Stan, where Stanley Fish lived. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the great literary critic. Yeah. And Stanley um, uh, was not... He, I mean, he obviously has a background in Judaism, but as a great Milton scholar, uh, he also um, had a deep appreciation for Christianity. And he would often make the point in conversation with people who would just say, well, we can't believe what any Christian believes because um, of X or Y kinds of criticism. And Stanley would always point out that that kind of criticism is usually first produced by Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, um, you can't just assume that it's the non-believer that is the great critic. Mm-hmm. The great critic is a is a St. Francis of Assisi or a Dorothy Day. Yeah. That, that's the way. 
and I think that has oftentimes failed to be recognized. One of the things, as I was researching some questions, I came across a quote that you said, the most creative social strategy we have to offer is the church. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm curious to know what is creative about the church? Um, it's where you discover that God is God and you are not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that means that the church is where you learn to worship um, God in a way that um, in a way that you learn to recognize how to live well in the face of death mm-hmm. and uh, that is a wonderful gift because where else do you uh, have broached what makes life livable? Yeah. And uh, I think uh, the church is the place where you learn the language that's necessary to make life livable. Hearing you talk about that reminds me of some of the literature associated with with 12-step programs and recovery where they also in I think about the third step realize that they are powerless and that they are willing to turn their lives over to the care of of God as they understand them and there's that language of as they understand them is that a similar process uh, I'm. I'm. Uh, I think the twelve-step program is uh, one of the places that you have reproduced Christian habits that um, are not to be found anywhere else. Hmm. Because in the tw- crucial in the twelve-step program is finally learning to take responsibility for um, behavior that happened to you, but you don't get over it and its negative implications unless you take responsibility for it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, the, I think the Christian affirmation that I have committed sin uh, is analogous to that mm-hmm. because sin isn't so much something I do but something that possesses me. Huh. And so I don't, I, insofar as I try to will my way out of it, I'm more in it. Right. So, <laughs> so how to... Um, recognize that um, there are powers in life that destroy us and we think we're in control of them and it's exactly 
how to confess that we are less than we should be is and have that confession build up a community is what Christianity is about. Mm-hmm. Of course, I also, that kind of quote, I mean, people think that I'm a, an ecclesiological fundamentalist, but, uh, I mean, hell, I, it's not that I uh, don't recognize uh, the um, accommodated character of the contemporary church. Uh, I mean, I was raised a Methodist. You can't miss uh, the, uh, the problems. But um, uh, it's, um, it's in worship that you're able to come to acknowledgement of who you are in a way that gives a way to go on that is otherwise unavailable. Mm-hmm. So it's also, of course, I'm I'm a representative of Christian nonviolence. Yeah, and uh, that makes all the difference in the world. That the church uh, is a place where we learn that it's not a good idea to kill another human being. Right. And there's not many places that believe that. Um, And so, um, I mean, Christians are people that follow a a Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago that ended up on a Roman cross. Mm -hmm. So um, that takes some getting used to. Thank you for having me here, by the way. And you have a pretty incredible collection of art. And it's clear that you have an appreciation of aesthetics. And I'm curious if if that worship that you're talking about can come in the form of creative practice. Absolutely. Indeed, it is creative and produces... Um, um, wonderful and elegant language. Um, Paul and I are deeply involved at the Church of the Holy Family uh, uh, up on the bypass. And uh, there's nothing quite like being led through worship through the Book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. Because the language is just uh, elegant, and we we live in a time when um, the language that we find in the political life of America is just damned ugly. It is, and how to have 
to be parts of communities in which the language has an elegance and a beauty to it uh, is crucial for living well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so aesthetics um, is an absolute um, um, crucial aspect of the faith. And um, creativity, I mean, it's interesting. Artists work within traditions. They're trained to see what um, a Rembrandt saw by going to a um, gallery and trying to draw what Rembrandt draw, drew. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. You go to a gallery and try to figure out how Dorothy Day lived and so on. So there is um, a deep um, aesthetic to um, living as a, a Christian. Mm -hmm. It's oftentimes, uh, um, Judaism is often thought to be uh, non-iconic, but I think that's not right. Um, Judaism's beauty is in um, the uh, people that refuse to let Christian pongroms stop them from worshiping the God they discovered mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in um, God's covenant with Israel. So I think that uh, there's a deep continuity between Israel and Christianity, mm -hmm. particularly just as they each give an imaginative um, account uh, that allows us to see the beauty of the world. I mean, I, um, it, it's interesting that oftentimes um, uh, in poor parts of the world where the church exists, it is oftentimes thought that you don't see that kind of aesthetic um, embodiment, but you do in the people. <laughs> yeah, people can be beautiful. Yeah, and I think they oftentimes are. And as I'm hearing you talk about creativity and the importance of aesthetics to the church, one thing that it makes me think of is. The phrase that came to my mind is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And that in is there a corollary between the way someone sees beauty or sees aesthetics and appreciates that and in your mind sees and appreciates God and yes. has that relationship with them? Yes. Um, the 
you got um, you've got to be trained to see beauty mm -hmm. and uh, you're trained to see beauty uh, by being stopped in your tracks oftentimes that aesthetic arrest yeah yeah by uh, thereby uh, being able to see the world differently. Mm -hmm. My One of the taglines that has been part of my work as someone that, quote, teaches ethics mm -hmm. is um, you can only act in the world you can see, and you can only see what you've learned to say. Hmm. It's language again. It's language, yeah. yeah. And so it's absolutely crucial. One of the things when I started this project... My background is in creative work and creative practice. And my goal was to help people connect to their inherent creative abilities. Because a lot of people, when you ask them, they would say, I'm not creative or I don't think of myself as creative. Kind of much in the same way that you might ask people about their faith. And they say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And I came across a quote from Noam Chomsky, this was several years ago, that posited that the fact that people can communicate, that they can use language, and that they can come up with phrases from a limited supply of words and a vocabulary, that is inherent proof of their creative abilities, that they can express themselves. And obviously that comes and goes with with times and that we may be in a, a kind of a desert of linguistic expression and that that might have some corollary to to this religious expression to this expression of faith i i think that a good analogy um i uh I mean, we're not there. I do think that artists are different. <laughs> mm. I, uh, they, uh, they school themselves by oftentimes being passionate about the particular in a way that is not widely appreciated by mm -hmm. other people and um, I therefore um, I myself I mean I can't draw at all <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, um, it's taken me years to learn to write indeed uh, interestingly enough I, I think fundamentally I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, for example, I think uh, writing Hannah's Child uh, um, 
was an exercise in literature uh, where I had to learn. I, I, I thought a lot about what style is appropriate. And I, it's somewhere between Dashiell Hammett and Hemingway <laughs> in terms of what I used. Yeah. Uh, the short, active sentence. But um, um, it wasn't. Uh, that's not the only place that I learned to write. Mm-hmm. One of the places that I uh, enjoy is preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very oscillatorial style that that I. Used for that, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not. Uh, I I love um, I love painting, but uh, I couldn't do it for the life of me. You'd, mm-hmm. You have to, so much of that is. I mean, you've got to be trained, right? And it's the same is true with language. The same is true with aesthetics, and so. The same would be true in your mind with, with faith and with belief. Absolutely, is that you've got yeah. to be trained. You can't. And so, I, and I'm. I don't want to push back on this idea of of spirituality and personal connection to. No, you can push back. <laughs> I'm an academic. Excellent. We're in. We're in good territory then. The. There's this dichotomy, you know, here we are in postmodern, maybe even post-postmodern times where language is attacked, nothing means anything, truth is relative. There are, there are fundamental experiences that people have in their lives that, that, for lack of a better term, resonate with them. Is there, I'm trying to think of how to, to phrase this question productively, <laughs> we are all human. We all have a basic structure. Is that the commonality of experience that, you know, this friendship that you're talking about and this communitas that you're talking about, is that, is that the pathway towards, towards truth and belief? In other words, how to get past this sort of self-serving use of language and towards towards a common do, means of making sense? The answer... <clears throat> She's trying. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, the answer... Uh, the, the feeling that we need to be part a universal uh, category called the human is certainly understandable. And, of course, there is something called the human species, but it doesn't take you very far because um, exactly what it means to be human means 
it's to be expressed in particular forms that make people not be able to understand their fellow human being. I, um, I'm deeply uh, distrustful of the presumption that there is a category called the human that is sufficient mm -hmm. to create commonality. That we're more than simply a, the sum of our parts. Um, we are more than the sum of our parts, but um, that's expressed by being um, an American, a right. German, a fr in France, a French person. Um, and the, the, the smaller and smaller concentric rings of personal identity. Certainly, no one is anyone. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, how you um, become a friend of someone that is different is always a great challenge. forms that uh, is represented by the great philosopher Kant mm -hmm. that wanted to establish commonality through the presumption that you are first and foremost a human being qua rationality. Mm -hmm. uh, and that had a kind of universality to it that I think was deeply European in a way that ended up racist. Yeah. And that's the reason I'm very hesitant to um, jump on the bad bandwagon of generalized humanism. Right. Um, I often um, illustrate it this way uh, uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto 
Do you know who's Lone Ranger and Tonto? Of course, yes. Uh, <laughs> but that young. We're getting to the point that people don't know. Uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto are surrounded with 20,000 Dakota in the West. And the Lone Ranger looked over to Tonto and said, this looks pretty tough, Tonto. What do you think we ought to do? And Tonto said, what do you mean, we white men? (laughs) Where's your commonality now? Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And I'm on Tonto's side. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm I'm curious, there's been a lot of academics who've brought to light the fact that the way that they've been urged to teach now in the university setting has has had to adjust to identity politics and to personal needs and trigger words and this sort of thing and i get the sense that in the divinity schools that's less of a problem is that no it's no is, is it more of a problem it's more of a problem interesting yeah why do you think that is because um christianity has been sold on the grounds that people don't need to believe in God much anymore, but um, they ought to uh, uh, believe in diversity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, no one knows what diversity is, though it's supposed to be uh, the defining characteristic of any institution that's um, is significant. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think racism is horrendous, but I don't know you get to it by proclaiming diversity. Right. Uh, because diversity, interestingly enough, hides difference. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, my own, as someone that spent, has spent their whole life in, in universities, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm in love with uh, that institution. Uh, I, uh, I find uh, the contemporary university in deep trouble. Yeah. Um, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, and what basically we're training schools like Duke um, we're training people who think they're going to run the world Mm. and we're not uh, we're not doing very well in terms of initiating students into the great intellectual traditions that uh, have made the university the university Mm -hmm. do you see a decline in I guess what could be called that sort of Socratic dialogos, the ability to hold multiple points of view simultaneously or to... Well, um, the Socratic method is one that begins with trying to discover what questions I ought to ask. Mm -hmm. And uh, to therefore... Uh, embody a critical attitude uh, toward the presumption 
for example, that I know what I'm saying when I say God. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the STEM courses increasingly don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and STEM, which can be brilliant and beautiful, um, the, uh, doesn't necessarily train people in um, um, the kind of critical um, knowledge that is crucial for the future. Mm-hmm. I had a, years ago. I had a kid uh, come to the Divinity School who had majored in accounting at the University of Texas before coming to the Divinity School. And um, I looked at his um, transcript and noticed that he had had two courses in the humanities as part of the accounting major. And I said uh, to him, uh, well, I see that you had courses in in the humanities. Um, uh, Did you by any chance read any philosophical text and he says I'm not sure and I thought this was either the uh, uh, most uh, intelligent response I'd ever had <laughs> or, the, or the most stupid and I said for example did you ever read anyone like Plato and he said who? Give <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you your answer fairly quickly. <laughs> I mean that someone can go through college and not know who Plato is. Which you, is more and more common an uh, occurrence now. Yeah, you got a problem. to that because clearly people in order to make sense of the world need a, a basis of, of of discerning reality and discerning truth and and managing their own epistemics I don't know what the solution is <laughs> I think we're in deep trouble yeah I think we're in deep trouble the um, heading back to the dark ages well uh when Donald Trump was elected president, I started going around and I would ask all my friends and acquaintances, do you know anyone that had voted for Trump? And all my friends and acquaintances, as well as myself, I didn't know anyone that voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. We're in a world that uh, there's a deep divide now. Um, and of course, I, as someone that comes from working class, I'm deeply sympathetic mm-hmm. um, with um, people who haven't had the opportunity uh, to know um, that Trump uh, is an abomination. Mm-hmm. But um, it's um, um, I, th- I th- interestingly enough. 
I think that one of the places that we really need to start putting emphasis again is on the community college. Mm -hmm. I I think the community college uh, has not gotten its due in terms of the kind of education it can give. And so um, um, I think Mrs. Biden (laughs) represents a way forward. Yeah. And in my experience, everybody in any class that I've ever attended at a community college has been there specifically to gain new skills and are open and and willing in a way that there is a, a paucity of in, in higher institutional learning, at least that I can glean. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, this is Hannah's Child is a lovely book, and I think you're right on in terms of the style. You very much nailed it. <laughs> that sort of it's um, very truthful, short. I, I don't terse is not the right word, but it's terse is a good word. It's to the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were. A couple things. I actually just read this this morning. You said my understanding of what it means to be conservative is shaped by the craft tradition, right. and you come from a, a heritage of of bricklaying and working with your hands, or sitting next to a piece of art that's made of stone that's clearly been worked with craft, and it seems like a a, a very strong metaphor for how to how to communicate something beautiful through the word so if if theologians must come to terms with the material upon which they work you said they must learn to respect the simple complexity of the language of faith mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about the language of faith um, well the fundamental genre of the language is prayer Mm -hmm. and um, it is um, it is a language that is to um, uh, that is made possible by not trying to protect God. Mm. So, um, if you read the Psalms, you read a language that says, um, I've been good. I've tried to follow you and my enemies have beat the shit out of me. (laughs) I don't know what in the hell you're about, God, but you're God and I'm not. (laughs) So, the language, I think, has um, a truthfulness to it mm-hmm. that um, is uh, is crucial. I have a little book called Prayers Plain Spoken uh-huh. that uh, has come as close as I can do to uh, having... Um, theological language have the intensity that uh, is associated with poetry. Mm-hmm. 
Can can you define prayer? It's taking a stance to be silent enough to let God loose in the world. Hmm. Uh, so it's uh, one. I, I suppose my initial reaction is I don't do definitions. I do descriptions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can describe prayer. You can describe it, but you can't define it. Which is, I would guess, is a similar way to approach God. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so for a, for a lot of people, God is, they start with, it's not me. Right. And working out from there, it's it's a unknown or unknowable thing in everything that everything right. has God nature. I come from the Quaker tradition right. and silence. There is, is the, the reverence of silence. And there's also respecting that of, of God right. or the divine in others. Right. And that, and that seeing that and, you know, it, which reminds me as we're talking about epistemics and dialogue, that is a way of, I mean, if you st- if you go into a conversation with someone with the expectation that they are divine, right. <laughs> you're going to approach the conversation in a very different way. Right. Right. Yeah. I, um, uh, in terms of what we were talking about earlier, in terms of beauty, mm-hmm. I think uh, um, the Quaker meeting houses are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because they have a kind of simplicity that's uh, extraordinarily elegant. Have you ever seen the Quaker Meeting House at Earlham College? I haven't. I've never been. It, there. It's a gorgeous. It's, it's just a gorgeous meeting house. Mm-hmm. I, I've thought that there's a deep commonality between the kind of ascetics that Benedictines produce and the kind of ascetics that uh, the Friends produce. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, it's uh, there's uh, an elegant simplicity to it that I I just find uh, extremely attractive. There's a phrase that Quakers use, which comes to mind, which is "Let us be silent, so that we may be here. We may hear the whisper of God's voice." Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. And one of the things that occurs to me as we're talking about aesthetics and about beauty and art and creativity is the role of the imagination in mm-hmm. faith and it's everything say more imagination is a crucial category for me and imagination <clears throat> is not um, where I entertain the fanciful it's where I come to terms with reality <laughs> hmm. Uh, and uh, and therefore it must be materially shaped by language and friendship. I've I've one more question for you. What's the question that's not being asked right now? What makes life livable as one 
who dies. Do you have an answer for that for you? I've had a wonderful life as someone who has been claimed as a friend by people who are better than me. <laughs> I think that's the best I can do. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Stanley, thank you very much for taking the time. It's a real honor and a privilege. I'm pleased to do it. I look forward to seeing how this goes forward. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. Great. in common we breathe we eat we sleep and we dream we love we cry we fight we make up and we play play lets us discover new parts of ourselves in play we expand our potential we feel safe we trust in that safety and trust we experiment with what we can imagine better art better us a better world for ourselves our families our friends our communities our shared humanity a common good. That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem-solving to the next level. Carolina Commons. Uncommon creativity for all.